The automobile is one of the most important inventions that revolutionized the modern world in America. The rich history of car culture runs deep as technology continues to shape the future of the industry. Jason Stein, former publisher of Automotive News, is here to share the stories of people passionate about cars, from industry leaders and innovators to car-obsessed celebrities. Buckle up as Jason takes you inside the boardroom, onto the track, and around the bend on Cars and Culture on Sirius XM Business Radio. Welcome to Cars and Culture. I'm Jason Stein in Studio 7 at Sirius XM's headquarters in New York. Not many in the car industry can say they've seen as much as Bill Ford. Consider his career at the Detroit automaker spans eight American presidents. He's the longest-serving auto executive chairman in the business. And as Ford himself says, he's seen at least six major setbacks, crisis moments, if you will, during his tenure. Not the least of which is the COVID-19 pandemic that led to wartime action on the part of the 118-year-old company. Go back less than two years and Mr. Ford led the Detroit Three in a coordinated effort to close factories, revamp assembly lines, institute safety protocols, and then restart, all amid a global health tsunami. During that time, he also was at the forefront of Ford's transition to the manufacturing of personal protective equipment. These were wartime moves. All the while, the automaker transitioned to a new CEO, launched never-before-seen electric vehicles, battled regulatory changes in Washington, and stared down former President Trump on California's fuel efficiency standards. And then, Ford Motor Company, like everyone else, could barely produce cars and trucks because of a global semiconductor shortage. Oh, and as of last week, Ford Motor Company stock reached a 20-year high. Perhaps Bill Ford has truly seen it all. The lineage, of course, is rich. He is the great-grandson of Henry Ford, and now an elder statesman in an industry where CEOs come and go. He joined the company in 1979, became a board member in 1988 at just 31, and was chief executive from 2001 to 2006. Since then, he's been executive chairman of the board. But Bill Ford has been so much more. If you consider the recent move to electrification or the fascination with smart technology and vehicle-to-vehicle -vehicle communication, Ford was talking about all of those topics long before it was cool on Wall Street or before electric cars were on Main Street. Since his first days inside the company's walls, he's advocated for a greener future and a more connected grid. Gridlock and greenhouse gas emissions have been on his mind before the talk of ride-sharing or a cleaner world. And while a California startup wasn't getting much attention a decade ago when Ford was talking EVs, there's no question his respect for Tesla and Ford's focus on bettering Elon Musk's car company is front and center. His team is reinventing the Ford culture and aims for the next iteration of its historic car company, all well focused on high profitability and investor returns. Detroit royalty, an American family icon, a symbolic cultural icon in the biggest manufacturing game on the planet. Bill Ford is my guest today. I'm Bill Ford, and this is Cars and Culture with Jason Stein. He's the executive chairman of a cultural icon, the original American brand. Bill Ford, thank you for being on Cars and Culture. It's an honor to have you on the program. Well, thank you, Jason. It's great to see you again. Let's start with where we find you today. Uh, you're at home, which is actually where you spent most of the last couple of years. And I want to get to that special connection that that actually created with your with some 25,000 folks who uh, joined you. But I know that this has been anything but a standard typical year for you, not that any year is typical, but oftentimes legacies shine during extraordinary times, and you've had to shine from your home office. That, that must have been different for you, I'm sure. Yeah, it was very strange. Um, you, know, you know, it took a while to get used to, and frankly, I, you know, I really missed uh, being with everybody. And so, you know, I, I'm not just tethered to my office. I, I'm out a lot. I you know, I get out and uh, particularly to go to our plants and where our people are congregating. But um, but, yeah, I've had a lot of, you know, Zoom meetings from from home, as have many people. And, um, you know, <laughs> I'm really looking forward to getting back to life as, nor to, as, as we all used to know it. When salaried employees were sent home indefinitely, you hosted those weekly town halls from your office and all of a sudden you had these enormous connections that occurred with so many of your employees. And, and in some cases, it, it was a chance to develop a bit of an intimacy, I suppose, uh, with teammates who you had not had before. I'm, I'm guessing as you reflect on that, that was a pivotal moment for you. I really enjoyed it. Uh, you know, the weekly town halls were something I would look forward to. Um, and then I'd get all the feedback. 
And then I kind of morphed from there, actually, to start, uh, I started having uh, meetings with small groups of employees at all levels um, throughout the week and throughout the month, because, uh, you know, sitting at home, I decided I better make the best of it. So um, it's been great. Uh, the, the connections I've been able to make and the, the kind of meetings you can have um, with, you know, 5, 10, 20, you know, group, uh, employees is something that I look forward to every week. And all of a sudden, you had folks asking you casually about the books on your shelf behind you. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, I had to start to rearrange a few because, uh, you know, in, in today's age of political correctness, you, you never know, you know, what might show up that would embarrass you. So, um, you know, it's uh, it's the world that we live in, I guess. But yeah, it was funny. I mean, people would start to comment on, uh, you know, the shirt I was wearing, my haircut um, <laughs> and everything else in between. But COVID brought you closer, ironically. Well, it did. You know, it's it's um, it was uncharted water. We had no idea, you know, how we were going to you know, actually operate as a company in in a world where we couldn't actually get together. So, you know, we started this this global town hall. Jim Hackett and I did when he was the CEO, um, and they seemed to really go over well. And we picked different topics every week, but then we also had a big open session where they could ask us anything that was on their mind. Um, and it was fun. I, I love it, and I kind of love the unscripted part of it all. Um, I. I I'm not one for a lot of uh, pre-prepared material. I'd rather just wing it. By your own estimation, you've lived through six major crises. I'm okay. sure you could probably list them if I asked you to. How does this one shape up relative to the others? Every crisis is different. Um, but the one thing that, that you, you have to cling to through any crisis are the values you have as a, as a company and as a person. Because ultimately, those are what get you through the crisis. And, and it also is what allows the employees to believe that tomorrow is going to be a better day. Um, because at the end of the day, if any company is just a, a paycheck, when things turn bad, they're going to leave you. Um, but if they believe in you as a leader, and more importantly, they believe in the company and the mission the company is on, then they're going to hang with you. And not only are they going to hang with you, they're going to pull you through it. Uh, and I saw that during the darkest days of the financial crisis when our two big competitors went bankrupt and I started getting flooded with um, letters, emails from all parts of the company, including from the plant floor saying, hey, Bill, don't give up. We can do this. Well, normally those kind of messages are top down, but these were all coming to me telling me not to give up. Um, and, you know, I'll never forget also that, you know, during those same uh, during that same horrible period, you know, our employees were working till midnight, one in the morning, no extra pay, weren't even sure they were going to have a job on Monday morning. But they believed in the company, they loved our company, and they were going to do everything that possible to get us through it. And guess what? They did. Um, and I will remember that till the day I die. One of the pivotal moments during the course of the last two years was the, was the point when you're really credited with pulling the Detroit Three and the United Auto Workers together. This is around March of 2020 making that bold decision to collectively close North American plants, unprecedented, not only in the closures, but I would say in the unity of bitter, bitter rivals coming together. And that was a collective decision against what was then a dire threat. What was that like in the darkest hour? Well, you know, first of all, um, <laughs> I guess I suppose if you're in a job long enough, you you develop a lot of relationships. And, and you know, and I, I had, and I had a relationship um, you know, with both General Motors and with uh, Stellantis uh, and, and also with the UAW. So I felt that it was important to get us all on the same page and to really face what, to, as you point out, was an unprecedented crisis facing our industry. Um, and yeah, we compete like crazy uh, every day in the, in the marketplace, but, but we also share a lot of similar issues and, and we face a lot of similar problems. And it just seemed to me that if we all kind of got on the same page, the UAW, Ford, Stellantis, and, and General Motors, that we could actually start to make some sense of, of the position we were all in and all asking ourselves the same questions, frankly. You got on the phone and placed calls to Mary Barra, CEO of General Motors, John Elkin, the chairman of Fiat Chrysler Automobiles at the time, UAW uh -huh. President Rory Gamble. You talked at levels of government, but you had, most importantly, a philosophy, Bill. You said you just realize you're never dealing with perfect information, so the more communication you have, the better. You were also, I'm guessing, looking for a common understanding among players who did not normally have common understandings. 
and you said you felt like Switzerland. How so? <laughs> well, I, I kind of did because if you remember back then, um, GM was suing um, Stellantis, um, and so there was some bad blood there. Um, you know, Rory was a relatively new head of the UAW, and he had come from Ford, so I'd known Rory for many, many years, and I felt that he and I had a, a level of trust and an understanding that um, that that we could work well together. And I and I felt that maybe Mary and John Elkin didn't know Rory nearly as well, and therefore you know hadn't developed that relationship. So I felt like you know I really was in a position to not only pull everyone together, but you know to make sure that you know we all you know that, well first of all we were all facing the same issues. But secondly, that we all kind of had some common understanding of what those issues were and what our options were, frankly, as an industry. Um, you know, we had never, as an industry, shut down plants all around the world before. Uh, everything just shut down. And it was a very, very scary time, and there was no playbook. No playbook, and yet a Project Apollo. And I want to talk to you about something that I think, I, I'm going to guess, is a high watermark in your own legacy, you, as part of Project Apollo, were able to uh, get forward on, on the path to manufacturing masks and gowns and ventilators and respirators as part of a huge pivot. This was wartime, willow run type stuff, right, Bill? Yeah, yeah, it absolutely was. Look, you know, one of the things I said to our company is we've been there whenever our country has needed us uh, through two world wars, you know, through uh, the the post war boom, um, you know, with, whether it's you know ambulances or fire trucks or police cars, I mean, how whatever is needed from society, we've been there. Well, guess what? Society needed us again. Um, they needed us to gear up and to help the country, and, and in this case, uh, many countries. But I'll, I'll focus for now on the U.S. Um, to to help this country uh, through uh, an unprecedented crisis, and so. Yeah, it was very much like wartime footing. Um, we stopped making cars and we stopped, we started making PPE equipment in great numbers. Because one of the things that became very clear to me in the very early days was there were companies out there that knew how to make respirators and ventilators, but they didn't know how to make a lot of them. Um, and there were companies out there, you know, making small batches of gowns and face masks and, and, uh, and shields but we could make huge numbers of them. So, you know, our team just went to work um, and I've never been so proud of our company because, you know, everybody volunteered. There was no, nobody, this was a very scary time, as you recall, and, and COVID was, was uh, a very virulent thing back then, uh, still is, but at least now we have a few treatments. Back then there was nothing. And, uh, and yet our employees volunteered in great numbers to come to work and to get to work on this for the country. And you personally toured the plants where, the, where, that, metal, where that medical equipment was made. And I, a very poignant moment, somebody came up to you, Bill, and said they had always regretted that they hadn't served in the military. This was their opportunity to give back. Do you remember that? I certainly do. Um, and, you know, and there were many moments like that. There I, there was another lady who came up to me who said she was doing this for her mother who had died of COVID. Uh, and, you know, and, and almost everybody there had a story, maybe not quite as poignant as those, but they all said, you know, the reason they were there was they wanted to help. Um, and as I say, because they didn't have to be there and they all volunteered. And it was, it was so, I mean, I, I felt so privileged to be part of that and to be with those people. What do you believe will be the lasting impact of the pandemic on Ford? Boy, that's hard to know. You know, the one thing that we completely missed was uh, we thought when the pandemic hit that sales were going to stop. I mean, we thought it was going to be like the financial crisis all over again, where people simply weren't going to buy vehicles. And I think we really, we really didn't understand uh, what was about to happen, which was that in many ways, cars and trucks became the ultimate PPE equipment, right? Um, people didn't want to get into public transport. They didn't want to get into shared um, forms of transportation. And you know, even people living in cities who hadn't owned a vehicle before were showing up at dealerships, you know, saying, I need to buy one. So the, the, the sales boom, if you will, that happened during COVID was something that we completely had miscalled. Um, we Ford and probably the whole industry. So that was an interesting um, kind of development of COVID that that we hadn't foreseen. And I think in terms of you know 
the lasting uh, impact, it's going to be really hard to know. But one thing for sure is that our workforce has told us quite definitively, our salary workforce, that going forward, the old days of coming into the office for 10 hours a day or more is something that they perhaps don't really want to do. And they'd like more flexibility in their life. And so we're trying to figure out what does, what does that mean in a post-COVID world? So I do think the way people are going to work you know, it will change. Now, many people can't change the way they work, obviously, because they, they're needed to be on, this, on the job at the site. Um, and that's true of both hourly and salary in many cases. But, but where there is flexibility, people would like some flexibility. And we're trying to figure out exactly what that looks like. Uh, and in fact, it was even announced recently that team members can take advantage of short-term remote work for up to 30 days per year without having to come on site for that period. So if, if you're a Detroit... Yeah, and, you know, I... And Jason, this will all evolve too, because look, we're kind of shooting in the dark now. We really don't know ultimately, you know, what it's all going to look like and what people are really going to want and what and what we Ford are really going to require in terms of uh, getting everyone together. So we're starting with some few, you know, with, with a few, you know, sort of stakes in the ground, if you will. But my guess is that six months after we get back to work, it'll it'll start to look quite different and we'll evolve this as we go. So as if COVID isn't enough, Bill, then we get into semiconductors, the smallest part yep. that creates the biggest problem. And things are improving, but I'm guessing that you could not have ever envisioned a pandemic followed by a global part shortage because of the pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, look, it's never dull in this business uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, and no two days are ever alike. So, uh, and we've dealt with a lot of, you know, different crises and, and, and different, you know, world events and, and some of which we are in control of and much of which we're not. But, you know, I, I think we've done a pretty good job of navigating through this. Um, you know, Jim Farley is a fantastic CEO and he's done a, just a great job of, of getting us well positioned. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's been challenging and, and it will continue to be challenging, I think, for some time. I think the other thing that we're seeing now is as we're switching to EVs um, and our industry is is starting to gear up to a, a software kind of industry and an EV kind of industry, you know, we're it, it's almost like in my great grandfather's day where the supply base, you know, in many respects is not fully developed. Um, and in some respects, you're better off doing it yourself. Um, and so, you know, it, it's really been interesting to watch us start to evolve our thinking on vertical integration and all these kinds of things um, that when I go back to my great grandfather's day was something that they did and then took for granted. And then we, of course, got away from it. So I think the whole the way everything is evolving now, um, you know, the way that our supply base, the way we as an industry, we're in a time of profound change. And there's and in that kind of change, there, there are going to be disruptions. Um, and so we're just going to have to get used to dealing with disruptions and making the best of it. And, and, and we are. Speaking of EVs, you were an EV crusader before it was cool, Bill, because... Yeah, actually, I had the first... Um, it was a lead acid ranger, um, <laughs> a lead acid battery ranger that was... Um, it, it was so full of batteries and so heavy that basically um, there was no room for anything but a driver and a passenger and literally nothing else. And the range was about 60 miles. Uh, and and I, that was my, I had the very first one. I had a charger at my house. When was that? Though, it, oh my goodness, this is 20 years ago. Um, hmm. And, you know, and, and the chemistries of course have all changed. And, you know, we've had, we started with we started with lead acid. We've had you know um, a nickel metal hydride. We've had sodium sulfur. Um, you know we're we're now at lithium ion. In in and the chemistries will con and each time it changes, the batteries get better, the range gets better, the uh, the the kind of space that it takes up gets less. So um, you know obviously there's been that that ranger that I just referenced that was not ready for prime time. Uh, there was no chance we could actually sell that to a, uh, a retail buyer. But I think it was indicative of the path that I would I wanted Ford to be on um, and the kind of pursuit of technology that would lead us to a cleaner future that I felt we had to have. In fact, you were talking about it 10 years ago in a Fortune article in 2011. You talked about green cars and the automaker's efforts to potentially electrify its fleet. And while not everything happened exactly the way that you wrote about then, 
you were ahead of your time on several things, including the fact that electric vehicles will have real-time information flowing through them. Again, this is 2011, Bill. And you're talking about smartphones that are checking how much juice is left in your car. We all know that's going to happen. We're talking about Wi-Fi for cars at the time. Again, true. And and you talked about the movement that needed to take place within the industry. And a lot of people looked at that back in 2011 and said, well, it's unrealistic to think 2020. And now here we are. You've, you're launching and have launched a Mach-E Mustang. You have an electrified F-150 that is electrifying the industry coming. And, of course, there's more on the way. Your Ford's going to spend 40 to $45 billion in CapEx between 2020 and 2025, and $30 billion of that will be dedicated to EVs. So somebody finally listened to you. Yeah, it was, it, it was really frustrating. I think, you know, particularly, you know, 10, 15 years ago, um, you know, I could see that our, our, our world was going to change dramatically. And I could see that, that Detroit in general, including Ford, was asleep at the switch and wasn't ready for it. Um, and as a result, you know, I founded my own venture capital firm to invest in a lot of these future solutions because I could see that the OEMs just weren't ready to do it. And um, but, you know, I knew we'd hit a tipping point. And once we hit the tipping point, um, then everyone would be in a, in a race to the future. And, and frankly, we're in that now. So I think all the OEMs are awake. Everybody's uh, racing hard to the future. Do I wish it had happened sooner? Yeah, I do. Um, and, you know, all you have to do is look at Tesla. And, you know, it's interesting. Um, I went out to see Tesla, you know, when it was, people think Elon Musk founded it. Actually, uh, I went to see Tesla when there was a, the CEO was a guy named Martin Eberhard. And um, uh, I don't know if you remember, but the only vehicle they had was the little Lotus derived Lotus. Uh, mm -hmm. sports car. And um, I went. I came back to Detroit, and I said, um, you know, hey, I just was out visiting this company that was really, really interesting uh, called Tesla, and it's an EV. And I said, you know, the fit and finish isn't very good, and you know, it's a, it's basically a prototype, but the thing is a blast to drive, and I think they're onto something. And our engineers just kind of laughed and said, you know, oh yeah, we're aware that they're they're not going to be anything. And that's when I was convinced that, OK, you know, we need to open our eyes. Uh, and, you know, and Tesla obviously had a had the playing field uh, all to themselves for you know quite some time because the OEMs across the, the industry just had their eyes closed. Was that, um, was that Detroit and, arrogance? Yeah, I think so, actually. But it wasn't just Detroit. It, it, frankly, it was it was it was Germany. It was it was Japan. Um, I mean, it I think it was the whole auto industry. It, it wasn't just Detroit industry um, arrogance. And yeah, I mean, I think I think it was you know sort of the, the not invented here syndrome that you know all the big players, whether it was Ford, Toyota, General Motors, Volkswagen, you know, you go down the list, they all felt like, hey, we're doing a ton of advanced research ourselves. Um, you know, we're we're you know looking at things like fuel cells and um, you know compressed natural gas and all these different things, and so. What Tesla is doing, frankly, isn't all that interesting. Um, and they completely missed the point that uh, it wasn't just the propulsion system that Tesla was doing, but it was also things like over-the-air update, all the software that went into it, um, the customer experience, all the things that they were experimenting with. So, um, so yeah, I mean... How could Tesla do it then? Well, look, they had it, they had the game to themselves uh, for a long time, and and uh, and they they were able to experiment and iterate. Um, and now, though, uh, I feel like we are um, not only in the fight, but we are in the fight to win. And um, it's going to be I can't wait to see what the future is going to hold because, you know, I like our chances very much. You know, it's interesting. Um, you know, most everybody focuses on the retail buyer, and they should. But there's also the the professional segment, and you know that's something that we are in the process of electrifying. We've set up our own division called Ford Pro, that's going to use technology and use software to make anybody who's in the professional world, whether you're a tradesman or a big fleet, make your life easier and better and more usable. I think those kind of things, um, you know, the the software, the 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 getting to the customer in a way that they've never interacted with before those kinds of things that tesla was was starting to not starting to but they were innovating in that space all of a sudden has become a very crowded and interesting space and I, and as i say I, I very much like where we're positioned 
Well, and where you are positioned is with some interesting vehicles, and I mentioned a couple of them. Let's talk about the development of the Mach-E. You were a guy when it first was, you know, shown to you or the concept was rolled out that went, "Mm, are we going to mess with the Mustang like this? You remember those days? Oh, I sure do. You know, listen, (laughs) I loved the Mustang. I still do love Mustangs, and I've got probably too many of them, but... um, (laughs) And but I, I felt that you know the Mustang was such a powerful brand for us, and when I saw what I thought was going to be an EV SUV, and calling it a Mustang, I I just it, the tilt sign went on for me, um, <laughs> and um, I, I thought that was a, a, just a terrible idea, and it wasn't until I got in the vehicle and drove it and realized my goodness this is a fantastic vehicle that I completely changed my mind. Um, because I was really afraid that we were going to severely tarnish the Mustang name. And I'd seen that elsewhere in our industry where, um, you know, people had tried, uh, quote, brand extension. And in fact, not only did it not work, they ended up tarnishing the entire brand. And so uh, and I felt that Mustang was so well known for what it was good at that to try and take a vehicle that looked different and was powered differently and slapping a Mustang badge on it, I thought was going to be a big mistake. But once I got into it and drove it, I became an instant convert. And I've been driving one ever since. Um, I, I absolutely love it. And and I think that's the thing. You know, you've got to get people in these vehicles for, for them to realize they're a blast. And actually, they're more fun in many respects than, you know, a big internal combustion engine. And so... Um, you know, I think the Mustang Owners Clubs had a lot of the same reactions that I did when we first rolled it out to them. You know, it was like, "Are you kidding us? No chance." Um, <laughs> but then we got them in. But then we got them in it, and they had the, kind of the same epiphany that I had. Well, you are the gatekeeper of the brand to some extent, aren't you, Bill? Yeah, but I'm not the only gatekeeper. I mean, those Mustang Owner Clubs—they uh, think they're the gate gatekeepers. Hmm. And in fact, many where they are, and. Um, you know, I'll never forget years ago when we introduced the Mustang uh, to Europe, and um, I, I did it at the Burj Khalifa um, in the Middle East, uh, the, the tallest building in the in the in the world. And I look, you know, we I had a we had a kind of a press conference. I looked out and I saw all these people wearing Mustang gear. So I walked over to them. I said, "Well, who are you guys?" And they said, "You know, well, we're the Mustang Club of you know Slovakia." I said, "But we don't sell Mustangs in Slovakia." They said, "Yeah, we know, but we've been waiting." Um, that's the kind of brand you know, presence that Mustang had. And that's what I was so worried about destroying. Um, but in fact, I think the Maki is actually going to um, not only not destroy it, it's really going to enhance it. You're good friends with RJ Scaringe, uh, Rivian. I am. And um, some big news, obviously, around Rivian and its IPO and Ford's investment in Rivian. Tell me about the first time that you met him and what you liked about Rivian and RJ. Well, you know, so so meeting RJ, um, you know, he, he's a, you know, obviously a very smart guy. We, we both went to MIT and, and you know, I knew some uh, of RJ's uh, friends and, and some of his professors. Uh, and I'd, I'd heard about RJ long before I had met him. Um, and then, of course, to the venture capital world, um, you know, that I was involved with, I, I was aware of RJ and Rivian. But, you know, when you meet RJ, you know, he's not at all what... I guess I would have thought that he would have been. He is he's not pretentious you know, at all. He's not pretentious. He's not. Uh, he's very thoughtful. He's uh, very down to earth, and um, he's just a great guy. He's a very charming, wonderful guy um, that I enjoy personally very much, and I admire him very much for. You know, Rivian wasn't just hatched yesterday. I mean, Rivian has been ten years in the making. Um, and RJ, you know, was in stealth mode for a long, long, long time. And, um, you know, and that takes a lot of conviction to really dedicate your life to something that ultimately you don't really know how it's going to work out because you, you're having to, you know, that's a very long gestation period. And by the way, it's very capital intensive. It's going into a world that, um, you know, traditionally you've got giant OEMs who, you know, could have potentially crushed them at any point. He had to have had tremendous uh, conviction and uh, belief to do what he's done. And I I'm, I admire him greatly. I sat with him in the early days when probably five or six years ago, 
when they uh, were talking about the plant in Normal, Illinois, which was a former Mitsubishi plant that they had taken over. And they had very little manufacturing knowledge. And now here we are with vehicles that are rolling. Let's talk about one more thing about EVs. The F-150 Lightning, you've got to be just sitting and (laughs) pins and needles waiting for that vehicle to be released. Um, You got the attention of the president. Well, yeah, that was fun. Have getting the president and let him let him be a lead foot, uh, which he yeah, was, yeah. Um, and he had a blast. He, in fact, you know, it's funny. He called me that night from Air Force One. He said it was one of the best days of his presidency, and I believe that's true. Because how many days does he get to have fun? Um, and um, and you know, he really had a great great time. Uh, you know, even though the Secret Service didn't want him to do it, he was determined to do it, and you know, it was. It, he, it was funny. I think somebody said, you know, somebody asked him what his zero to 60 time was. And I think he, he said 60. I was going 80, which he was. Uh, <laughs> so um, but he uh, but no, the lightning uh, has been, I think, a real eye opener for a lot of people, because I think a lot of people thought, OK, well, Ford's just going to drop a battery in an F-150. And, you know, that's that's the end of the story. What they didn't realize is the capability of this vehicle is so different than a you know a traditional F-150 that are, in many ways it can do um, more things. And I think that's what really surprised people was the capability of this vehicle. Not the fact that Ford dropped a battery in an F-150, but what that allowed the vehicle to do. Um, you know, whether it's, you know, uh, having all that room up front for tools or for tailgating, um, or, you know, all the connection points that, the, you know, that you have in terms of plugging in, the fact that you can power a work site, you could power your home from, if you need to. I think all those things really kind of made people look at the vehicle in a totally different light. And you, yeah, I'm really excited by it. As are we. You were, um, you were early on the, on the whole notion that infrastructure needs to be an important part of the uh, American vision going forward as it related to EVs, as it relates to technology. And lo and behold, there's finally an infrastructure bill that's passed, $7.5 billion to help set up a national EV charging system. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think, you know, we need that for sure. Um, But actually, we need conventional infrastructure, too. I mean, our roads are in tough shape. Uh, You know, our our, our ports are not modern. Uh, Our airports could could use some, some help. I mean, really, all the traditional kind of you know, what you think of as infrastructure, you know, even the old FDR playbook of of fixing infrastructure, a lot of that's still relevant. But yeah, there's a very much a future looking uh, piece as well, um, because infrastructure now includes, as you point out, things like EVs. So um, I'm really happy that it's passing. We need it um, because it'll make uh, everybody's life in this country trying to get from point A to point B much easier, whether you're doing an EV or a conventional vehicle. After the break, I'll continue my conversation with Ford Motor Company Executive Chairman Bill Ford. The automobile is one of the most important inventions that revolutionized the modern world in America. The rich history of car culture runs deep. Technology continues to shape the future of the industry. Jason Stein, former publisher of Automotive News, is here to share the stories of people passionate about cars. From industry leaders and innovators to car-obsessed celebrities. Buckle up as Jason takes you inside the boardroom, onto the track, and around the bend on Cars and Culture on Sirius XM Business Radio. Welcome back into Cars and Culture. I'm Jason Stein at the SiriusXM Studios in New York. Now back to my interview with Ford Motor Company Executive Chairman Bill Ford. Let's talk a little bit about you and your family. Uh, a fifth generation of the Ford family has joined the company's board of directors. Your daughter, uh-huh. Alexandra Ford English, and your nephew, Henry Ford uh-huh. III. What does that mean to you? Well, I, I, look, I think one of the things that makes Ford different is the fact that um, there is somebody there that's going to be accountable through thick and thin um, that is not going to disappear with a golden parachute when, <laughs> when, when, when things get tough. Um, and also, you know, gives um, a, a, a face and a personality to a brand um, that has been that way for 118 years. And so I love the continuity but only if they're good enough. Um, and there was a big vetting process for both of them because the last thing that the company needs or the family needs is to put on people, uh, put people on our, on the Ford board who frankly um, aren't going to pull their weight. So uh, I'm really excited that 
for both of them because they're both fantastic. Uh, they're both um, really devoted to the company and to the future success of the company. And um, they're both really smart. So uh, I love it. Um, and I love the fact that, you know, that they're now looking for the next 20, 30, 40 years down the road. Um, and I just wish that I was 30 years younger um, and could be with them on the journey because I think it's going to be really, really fun. Well, as you said before, throughout just about every imaginable challenge over the last 118 years, world wars, depressions, recessions, pandemics, the one constant has been your family. And I'm guessing that that's your, that's your compass as you chart out the next 118 years. Well, it is. And I, and I think it's important not, not only that you just have a family, but you actually have values behind that family and that those values guide you when you're making decisions uh, because they won't always be um, popular. I mean, if I think even in the last few years when we decided to you know side with California against the Trump administration on rolling back emission standards and you know, uh, signing up to the Paris Accord and, and, and going, jumping into the PPE equipment uh, during you know, COVID, those, those kind of decisions become a lot easier if you actually um, have values that you stand by and that um, are known throughout your organization. Decisions start to come easier then, even if they're not always popular decisions. So um, I think it's important to have family there, but I think it's important to have the family there with the right values and be ready to stand up for those values as well. Because there's so much short-term pressure in business today to do the expedient thing but you have to do the right thing. Um, and if you do the right thing, it pays off in the long term. I'll always believe that. And I also believe that our employees feel so much better about the company if they believe that the company is standing behind the right thing. And by the way, there can always be disagreement over the decision, but there shouldn't be any disagreement behind the values uh, about the values behind that decision. There are many people who consider themselves part of the Ford family. You haven't maybe met all of them, <laughs> but Ford, you know, the, the, the part of the show is culture. You know, this is cars and culture. Ford is culture, Bill. It's, oh, you bet. It, it's a Ford Mustang. It's an F-150 truck that's either built Ford tough or built Ford proud. And there are 72 different artists and some 5,000 lyrics, you may or may not know this, that mention Ford, including a song out now by Robin Ottolini called F-150. It is all culture all the time about Ford. That 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 has to be just amazing to you, I'm guessing, and and also um, uh, somewhat of a of a um, uh, a burden. Oh, it's never a burden. I think it's awesome. Um, and uh, you know, I mean, it's everything. As you point out, the Eagles sang about us in a flatbed Ford. I mean, you know, you, you kind of go on and on with it. Um, yeah, it's very cool. And, you know, I live it every day. Every time I go out uh, in public, which I do every day, people want to stop me and tell me their stories. And they want to tell me about the first vehicle they owned, or they want to tell me about their their you know aunt or their grandmother or their grandfather that worked at Ford. Um, everybody wants to tell you their Ford connection. And I, I absolutely love that. And, you know, I think there's a tremendous reservoir of goodwill out there on Main Street towards Ford Motor Company. People want Ford to win. We just have to let them know that we are winning and we can win. And I think that, um, you know, and if you disappoint them, though, boy, do you hear about it. Uh, so if, if you know, if you come out with a vehicle that they don't like or if, you know, we have a few years that we don't do very well in, the, in our business results, I think we hear about it more than the average company uh, because the passion for us is real and people want us to do well. And if, it, if we're not doing well, yeah, they'll let us know. But if we are doing well, they are so excited. And, you know, you see it, you see it at racetracks, you see, you see it everywhere you go. Um, there is people love Ford. And I'll never forget when we turned 100 uh, years old, we had a reception in Washington and uh, up uh, at, at the Capitol. And I was told, you know, hey, look, a lot of the members themselves won't come. It'll be a lot of staffers. Um, but don't be, you know, don't, don't be disappointed by that. Well, virtually every member showed up and hmm. most of them had Ford stories that they had to tell me um, about, you know, their father, you know, had used to own a dealership or their grandmother, you know, worked on the assembly line. I mean, people that we had no idea that had connections to Ford um, in Congress couldn't wait to tell us their Ford stories. And I, and that is very common. And I love that. The other thing is, 
we have so many multi-generational employees at Ford, um, and that's different too. So whenever I go into our plants or any of our office buildings, people run up to me and tell me, you know, I'm, I'm fourth generation also, just like you are. Um, and then they'll tell me their Ford story. And it's, it's something that I think is very special, and I hope we never lose. How important is it to protect that? Cultural. Oh, it's the most important thing we have, frankly. Um, Look, if we lose, if we lose the hearts and minds of people, um, you know, we're just another company, and it won't matter. Yeah, your stock has been, well, you described it as roaring recently, (laughs) and I remember the days, Bill. um, You know, thirteen years ago or so, when it was a buck eighty. Yeah. And Ford stock topped as of this taping twenty dollars a share for the first time since September of 2001. How much does that mean to you? Well, it's huge. Uh, and I think it's really a validation, too, of the, the the course that we've set. I think, you know, I mentioned Jim Farley a minute ago. I mean, since Farley has taken over, the stock's more than doubled. and uh, 72% in the last six months. Yeah. And and Jim, you know, and, and, and I... You know, Jim Hackett laid a lot of the groundwork uh, that we're we're seeing now come to fruition, and I think Jim Farley is has done just a fantastic job, and will and will continue to. And I think you know we part of it though is intentionally we were quite quiet uh, for some years. Well, why is that? Well, you remember Jason when everybody was saying back in like 2017 and 2018 on autonomous vehicles. Oh, we're going to have X number on the road by 2019. We're going to have Y number by two. We didn't say anything. So then the the impression was Ford's asleep at the switch. Well, the reason we didn't say anything is we knew that those weren't real. Same thing with EVs. Uh, a lot of our competitors were talking about all the things they were going to do. We were very quiet because we wanted to show people what we could do. Um, so when we launched the Mach-E, there wasn't a lot of preamble to that. All of a sudden, we launched it, and everyone said, "Whoa!" We didn't know Ford was working on that. And then the same thing with the Lightning. So um, I always have felt that it's better to, you know, to steal Teddy Roosevelt's line, you know, uh, walk, you know, uh, softly and carry a big stick. I think that, you know, we should underpromise and overdeliver. And I think in our industry, we've seen a lot of the opposite. Um, so I think there was a perception out there, and it was reflected in our stock that Ford wasn't in the game. Um, and I think the last year when we've really shown people what we've been up to and what we're capable of and what our future intent is, that investors have said, my goodness, you know, Ford is in the game and we think they can win. So you said validation. That's a key word. Wall Street seems to finally be validating your strategy. At the same time, we look at that other brand that we talked about earlier is has a market cap of 1.071 trillion <laughs> Tesla. Yeah. Yeah. And yet uh its revenue is is a fraction of um Ford Motor Company. Yeah, and that what just gives? gives you though a sense of what our what our upside can be when we get this when we when we get this right. Uh and we are getting it right and I think that you know I I I'm so excited by our future uh because I believe that you know if we get this if we do this the way I believe we're going to do it, we're going to be less capital intensive, more revenue certain, higher margin um, as we go into the future with a brand image that is going to be even stronger than today. And I, I'm you know, and really making our customers' lives easier and better. And so um, I'm really, really excited by that. So, you know, because Jason, look, you've been in this industry a long time. And so have I. And, you know, winning and losing, you know, before this era has been just tenths of a point of market share has been, you know, horsepower and styling. And, you know, that's really been about it. Now, all of a sudden, we're at the cusp of a very different era where you're going to have true winners and losers. You know, the, the winners are going to do um, really well and the losers are going to be out of business. Uh, so, you know, I think the game has changed and the, the stakes have changed. But if you get it right, the rewards are going to be much higher. You've said it recently about yourself. I feel like I'm adding value to Ford today, maybe more than I ever have before. What did you mean by that? Well, I, I feel like, you know, um, I'm in a stage of my career where I, you know, I've seen a lot. I've, I've been through a lot. I've, um, you know, I've, I've dealt with, there's not much I haven't seen or dealt with. Uh, and I think a lot of our executives, um, you know, are younger and ha- haven't done that. So I feel there's, you know, a lot of 
kind of steadying the ship that I can do for our, our organization, but also much more importantly, um, I've always been forward looking and I've felt that our company in the past hasn't been really ready to act on it, but I, but now they are. And I think Farley and, you know, and I are in lockstep in terms of the future, how aggressively we have to go after it um, and the kind of bets we're willing to make. And so, um, you know, I, again, I feel like all the years of leaning into the future, uh, uh, contacts that I've made outside of Ford Motor Company, venture capital, all the things that I've invested in myself um, are now coming back to Ford and, you know, allowing me to open doors for the company, uh, introduce, you know, thought leaders to the company um, and help cr craft a strategy and then give Farley the air cover that he needs to go off and make it happen. So, yeah, I do feel like I'm adding a lot to, to Ford now, uh, and it feels it feels really good. Ten years ago, you talked about grids and smart grids and car charging stations and batteries and electric vehicles. Give me ten years from now, what does it all look like in 2031? Maybe for Ford. Well, I, I think you'll you you know I mean I first of all anything I will tell you will be wrong, but I but I <laughs> but. Uh, but I'll give it a shot. Um, so I, I do think, you know, I'll give you the easy stuff first. The easy stuff is we'll have, you know, a largely EV fleet. Um, the charging will be ubiquitous. The fast charging will be, you know, uh, very available. And that it will be EVs instead of being people's second and third car will be their only vehicle. I think, though, you'll also see we'll go back to the trend we saw pre-COVID of more shared transportation uh, and less, you know, of everybody must, you know, having their own vehicle. And therefore, the vehicles themselves will have more uptime uh, and less parking time. Uh, autonomy will finally be here. I mean, despite all the promises that we saw, you know, over the last decade, I think that, that you know, reality will, will be, uh, and you'll have both types of vehicles on the road, fully autonomous vehicles, but also vehicles with a lot of partial autonomy on the road uh, with drivers in the driver's seat. You'll have both. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, subscription models um, will be very much a part of the financial equation. And, um, and as I said a minute ago, I think a lot of the, the companies whose names you would recognize five years ago won't be, won't be here by then. Uh, but there'll be new companies that will, will be there and adding value. And I think that you'll see many, many more partnerships between uh, OEMs and content providers um, by that time, and uh, all, all of which will make the customer's life much more seamless between leaving their house, getting in their car, you know, it's, it's everything will travel with them like it does today on their phone. Well, their phone will become, you know, integrated into the car in a way that, in, in, but the phone itself will become so much smarter and that we'll be able to anticipate what customers want and need. And again, as I say, make their life easier and better. Now, does that scare some people? Yeah, it probably does. And, you know, there are some, some privacy issues and all kinds of tales that need to be worked out. But um, I think that's the world in, into which we're headed. Um, and I believe that, um, you know, the, in that time frame, all those things that I said will, will happen. Will the industry then consolidate and get smaller? I don't think so. In fact, you know, uh, I think it, it, if anything, it could get bigger uh, because you, you do have uh, rising GDPs around the world. You do have, um, uh, you know, rising middle class in, in many parts of the world. And I think that uh, that access to transportation is something that people are going to want. And actually, we will enable people getting out of poverty. So one of the things about uh, there was a study at Harvard done not so, so long ago that said one of the big inhibitors to, for people getting out of poverty is they can't get to where the work is. Um, you know, you think of the way cities have developed used to be uh, that you worked in your neighborhood when, you know, a gen couple generations ago. Well, now many of those jobs are out in the suburbs or even out in the countryside. Um, and people are living in cities and they can't get to them. They might have to take four or five buses just to get to where the jobs are. But if we can actually uh, enable uh, autonomous driving and shared mobility such that people can be picked up and dropped off where the work is, 
then we can be accelerators for people getting out of poverty. Um, and uh, that alone, I think, will start to drive more uh, more demand. So I actually don't think the I don't see the industry shrinking, but it will change and it will change from individual ownership to more shared kind of ownership. I have two final quick things for you, Bill. When you walk through those parking lots that you talked about earlier and when you're when you're out, as you said earlier, and you see a Ford product that's that's driving around or or parked near you what does that say to you it's got to be it it still has to be a thrill hey my name's on it um <laughs> and uh and believe me i noticed that uh i bet you do but be, well but because my name's on it you know i feel a tremendous responsibility and you know and and if i see it honestly if i see a car by the side of the road the first thing i look at is for the logo um and if it's one of ours my heart sinks um and um, so, yeah, it's it's something I've I live with and I love and I wouldn't change for anything. But I, I do. You bet. I, I, I notice every car, not only in the parking lot, but everyone that on the road, I, I, I notice uh, whether it's one of ours or one of theirs. Stocks and dividends aside, are you having the most fun that you've ever had? I am. I absolutely love this. Um, and I've said this before, but I wish I was 30 years younger. I mean, I. I, I, I just love the future of, of the company. All the things that I wanted to see happen and believed would happen, um, particularly in my career when other people said I was crazy, they're all happening now. Um, and I, I can't tell you how much fun that is to be part of something that is tremendous change. You know, my, look, in many ways, my great-grandfather was the ultimate disruptor. And I think he would have been very disappointed at the rate of change that this industry had had uh, from his day until about three years ago. Um, and I think now, though, I mean, he would take a look at what we're doing and say, yeah, go for it. This is great. This is exactly what you should be doing. So um, and not that I think of him every day because I don't. I'm, uh, I really think much more about the future than the past. But it really is interesting that an industry that has not had many revolutions over a hundred years now is on the cusp of many revolutions and I love it. He is the executive chairman of Ford Motor Company. Bill Ford, thank you so much for spending time with me on Cars and Culture today. Jason, thank you. This was a blast. Thanks to Ford Motor Company and its executive chairman, Bill Ford. And thanks for listening to Cars and Culture. Follow Cars and Culture on LinkedIn and Facebook, as well as on Instagram at Cars and Culture SXM and on Twitter at Cars Culture SXM. I'm Jason Stein in New York. And we'll see you down the road. Hey, this is Karen Hunter. And at Urban View, we have a family of tough people. We are about making change. Who are willing to not just work, but to have a vision. We demand that the people take action. Use their power to make change. That's what really Urban View and the Madison Show is all about. We invite you and we challenge you to create the world you want to live in. It's not your typical talk channel. Urban View, Sirius XM 126.